0: RPN, The Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Hundreds of courses, thousands of lectures, tons of stuff you want to know. Try it for free for one month at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mission
1: log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 289, The Circle and The Siege.
2: an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart from messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the whole thing holds up today. And that would be the other two-thirds of the regular
0: mission log opening, in keeping with our handling of the start of Season 2 of Deep Space Nine.
2: I'm Caden Ray, by the way. And I'm John Champion. So last week, we did The Homecoming, part one of the three-part season opener. This week, we're doing the other two parts, The Circle and the Siege.
0: Yeah, because last week was the part where we said, Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. But we're not doing that this week, because we're only doing the other two-thirds.
2: It was so long ago, I barely remember how that goes.
0: Yeah, not even sure what you're talking about. John's got trivia coming up in just a moment, uh, which I can't imagine there's much, because it's only kicking off a whole new season of a relatively new Star Trek series, and there are two parts to it. But um, yeah, um we'll find out how much trivia there is in a moment. First, I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And just like that, we're into some of the trivia, all of the trivia. Listen and find out.
2: I'm keeping it short. I'm keeping it short because there, there's a lot of plot to get through here. I will tell
0: you, there is a whole bunch of recap coming up. So,
2: you know, <laughs> so strap in if you're in traffic. Oh, boy. This is a good time for you to be here in this show. Uh, trivia for The Circle and The Siege. Now, The Circle was written by Peter Allen Fields and directed by Corey Allen. Corey Allen, of course, directed TNG's pilot episode before finishing up four more on that show. He directed Captive Pursuit on DS9, and he will take on just two more directorial jobs on DS9 before we say goodbye. The Siege was written by Michael Piller and directed by Wienrich Kolbe. And here, this makes sense. We have Wienrich coming back since he directed The Homecoming, which kicked off this arc. Hey, we go back to the Ferndale in Griffith Park. That's very exciting. Still, it's an actual location. That, that is so pretty, it doesn't look like an actual location. And, uh, Ken, I know that you'll enjoy this bit of trivia. That scene in Kira's quarters where everybody's coming in moment after moment to say goodbye and have their take on her leaving, that's actually based on a scene in A Night at the Opera. And I don't mean the Queen album, A Night at the Opera. I mean the Marx Brothers film. And uh, they did the master shot in one continuous take. Really? Yeah.
0: Now, in Night of the Opera, you are talking about the one where everybody comes in, and then I think Mrs. Rittenhouse, or whoever uh, Margaret Dumont was playing at that point, uh, uh, comes and opens the door, and basically everybody just falls out into the hallway at her, right?
2: Right, yes. Yeah. Uh, see? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you know it. You know it. So good. All right, now let's talk about the uh, Paluku That was a toy. Literally, somebody found it at a garage sale. It was a little multi-legged robotic toy. They dressed it up with a bit of fur uh, and then it walked too slowly so they sent it back to the effects guys and they put a no- new motor in it to get it to scamper around a little more quickly. But they, they, they cut it pretty quick in the show because the more you looked at it, it just looked more and more like a toy. All right. Let's talk about guest stars. So, of course, we welcome back some of the major players that we have recently met. Uh, there's Philip Anglem. There's Richard Bamer. There's Frank Langella. There's Louise Fletcher, but some new faces here. Bruce Gray as Chicote. Welcome back. Nice to meet him again for the first time. Bruce played Admiral Chakotay in this episode of DS9 prior to his appearance on TNG in Gambit Part 2, but literally only a week apart in October of 1993. So this episode had aired, and then Gambit Part 2 aired a week later. Now, credits for Bruce include Babylon 5, Starship Troopers, and Boston Legal, we will see him one more time in a very different role on Enterprise. Stephen Mock, he plays General Krim. He's one of those actors who's just been constantly working since the early 70s, even if he's not really a household name. He's got some really interesting and diverse credits. He was in the Dorothy Stratton vehicle, Galaxina, in 1980. Uh He was in the cult favorite, Monster Squad. He was Benedict Arnold in that awesome 1980s George Washington miniseries, the one starring Barry Bostwick. He even turns up in Babylon 5. Now, we've got him here for two episodes of DS9, uh, but we would have had a lot more of him in an alternate timeline. Think back to early 1987. Steven was a favorite to play Captain Julian Picard <laughs> on some new Star Trek show. In fact, he was Dorothy Fontana's top pick way over that British actor from Excalibur. Hmm. And we have Steven Weber as De Canu. And this might be his only trek appearance, but t v audiences definitely could recognize Stephen Weber as one of the stars of the sitcom Wings that was on concurrently with d s nine outside of that uh he had been in so much uh once and again the twenty thirteen version of Dallas he had his own show for a short time called The Weber Show. And he even starred in the TV miniseries version of The Shining. He was also a regular on an underappreciated show of the 2000s, Studio 60, on the Sunset Strip.
1: Wow. This episode actually starts with Kira entertaining.
0: The Continuation Minister Jarrow and Commander Cisco are squaring off over the removal of Major Kira as liaison officer between the Bajoran Provisional Government and the Federation, and the installation of Navark Lee Knowles in her place. Diplomatically, Cisco tells Jarrow that he's full of it, it being hot air. Jaro says Kira is being promoted, something Cisco doesn't believe, and that Lee isn't being kept out of the way on DS-9. Rather, Bajor is entrusting the station with its greatest hero, something else Cisco doesn't believe. With Jero gone, Benjamin gets word that Jake wants to see him at home. The mark of the Bajoran separatist group, the Circle, has appeared on the door of Cisco's quarters. Act 1. Kira's packing to leave DS9, and the gang's all here for different reasons. Odo wants Kira to fight to stay on Deep Space Nine. Dax wants to return some skincare products and see what's happening next. Bashir has come to wish Kira his best. O'Brien says it was a pleasure to serve. And Quark had really hoped it would just be a private goodbye between the Major and the Ferengi. But the most welcome visitor is Vedic Burail. He says things are going poorly on Bajor, with seemingly more weapons on the street today than during the Cardassian occupation. Kira wonders where the weapons are coming from, though Beryl says he tends to concentrate more on the spiritual. Speaking of which, word is you're out of a job. Want to come hang out at the monastery? It can help when the spirit gets a little bruised. Major Kira accepts his offer, then heads to ops for one last look around. There she bumps into Lee Knollis. He apologizes, saying he didn't want this job. She says she didn't either at first, but it worked out for her. And she hopes it will for him as well. She offers him help if he needs it, and he, in turn, offers Sisko whatever help he can offer. While Sisko seems fine with Lee Nallis, he tells Major Kira that he will get her back to her post on the station. And with that, Major Kira says goodbye to Deep Space Nine. Act 2. The monastic life may not be Kira's bag. She says the relaxing practice of laying stones evenly on a path is... frustrating. She confesses that she has no artistic skill and is useless at the monastery. Beryl says maybe she should explore feeling useless. There's some sort of subtext to their discussion. Romantic maybe? Sexual maybe? Whatever it is seems to be heightened when Beryl tells Kira, it's time. What it's time for is unclear until Beryl takes Kira inside and puts her face-to-face with an orb— Specifically the third orb, the orb of prophecy and change. The vision it gives her is confusing. She's in the Chamber of Ministers on Bajor. They're yelling, but she can't hear them. Dax appears, dressed in a Vedic's garb. She tells Kira that she can hear them. Just listen. They hug, but when they part, Dax is Vedic win. Behind Kira, Minister Jaro appears, saying the ministers are calling for him. But Burial in military garb, appears, saying that she should not listen to Wyn and Jero. The ministers, he says, are calling for her. She says she doesn't know how to hear them, though Beryl says she does. Then Kira's naked, then Beryl's naked, then they're about to kiss, and when the vision ends. On Deep Space Nine, Odo is talking to a security friend on Bajor. Things down there are getting worse. The circle always seems to get away, one step ahead of the authorities. Odo figures someone on high must be tipping them off. Post call Quark comes in, reprising his role from the first episode of Deep Space Nine. All of this is falling apart. Everyone is leaving, and he thinks it's time to get out. Odo scoffs. (laughs) Because of the circle? They're just hooligans. So Quark says, actually, they have enough weapons and explosives to support an army. And now he's got Odo's full attention. Quark says the Circle is getting its weapons from the Krasari, which makes no sense whatsoever. The Krasari don't even have a military. But Quark says, believe it, the Krasari are supplying weapons to the Circle. Fine. Odo tells Quark to find out where the weapons are going while Odo tries to figure out where the Krasari are getting them. There's a Krasari ship coming to DS9 in 36 hours. He'll probably start there. Yeah, says Quark. Remember the part where I'm leaving? I'm leaving. So Odo gives him a choice. Either find out where the weapons are going as Odo's deputy, or be charged with impeding an investigation, and be Odo's prisoner. I'm a deputy, says Quark. News of the massive numbers of weapons has Odo and Sisko thinking a coup may be on the horizon. Sisko asks Lee Knollis to check with any contacts he has in the military to see what's going on. Back on Bajor, Kira's being coy with Beryl about what the orb revealed to her. He says he actually came to DS9 to get her because the last time he encountered the third orb, she was in his vision. Wow, weird, says Kira, because you totally weren't in mine. This bit of awkward interrupted by the sound of a battle off in the distance and the arrival of Vedic wind. Just as terrible as ever. In less than a minute, she pretends to not remember Kira, but little Kira for having led a life of violence, takes Barile to task for letting Kira see an orb without consulting the other Vedics, and suggests that Kira is there to act as Barile's ...um... plaything. All said with a smile and an invitation... Stay as many days as you like, Major. Even as much as a week. I don't think Kira was fooled by the smile. Act 3. Commander Sisko's on Bajor to see General Krim of the Bajoran military. It's quickly established that Krim and Sisko don't see eye to eye. But Krim respects Sisko. He reasons well, even if they disagree. So what's up? Sisko wants to know why Krim is going easy on the circle. Krim says it's difficult pitting Bajorans against Bajorans. Cisco acknowledges that, but he says the Circle is being armed by the Krasari. That's news to Krim. If Cisco hears more, Krim would like to hear it too. And Cisco agrees. Also, if he could ask Krim for a favor, Major Kira has yet to be reassigned. He'd like her back on Deep Space Nine. Krim says that's out of his hands, but interesting. You gave me information, then asked for a favor. You might have held the information as a bargaining chip to get what you want. Krim respects that, and will remember it. Back on Deep Space Nine, the Krasari ship that was coming in, yeah, it's been here for a while, being inspected by Chief O'Brien. For over six hours, the ship's been inspected, Dax finally tells O'Brien to release the Grisari ship, though, unbeknownst to the Grisari, the shapeshifter Odo is now aboard. Back on Bajor, Commander Sisko is visiting the monastery. Specifically, he's visiting Major Kira. She's... kinda mellow. Though Sisko snaps her out of that. While she's been daydreaming, the battle for Bajor has ratcheted up. The Circle is planning a coup, and Sisko's not sure the military will back the provisional government. Anyway, he's got to get back to Deep Space Nine, and Kira says... Yeah, so does she. Benjamin will keep working on getting her reinstated. But as soon as he's gone, Kira is abducted. By the Circle. Act 4. Holy smokes, the weapons the Krasari are selling the Circle. They're coming from the Cardassians. A disguised Odo sees a weapons transaction occur on the Cressari ship. On Bajor, Kira's in the Circle's secret hideout, which is chock full of weapons, and their leader, Minister Jarrow, the one who got Kira pulled from Deep Space Nine and stuck Lee Knollis there. He acknowledges the ploy, saying the last thing he needs right now is a war hero rallying the people. Kira accuses Jaro of subverting the government, though he doesn't see much of a government to subvert. Bajor has been powerless. First against the Cardassians, now against the Federation. It will be powerless no more. Quick question, though. When the Federation sees that Bajorans are taking over Bajor for their own sake, what will the Federation do? In the face of bribes, then threats, Kira refuses to answer. On DS9, there's concern over Kira's disappearance, but get this, Deputy Quark has done his job. He's found out where the Circle's headquarters are. Sisko, Bashir, O'Brien, and Lee Nallis are about to mount a rescue. And that's how Kira ends up back on Deep Space Nine. Act 5. Odo's back with proof the Cardassians are arming the Circle. A stolen manifest from the Griseri's ship. Of course, the Bajorans don't know it's the Cardassians supplying the weapons. They think they're doing a straight-up deal with the Grissari. Lee doesn't get it. Why would the Cardassians want a stronger Bajor? But that's not what this will get them. If the Bajorans kick out the Federation, they will be defenseless. Easy pickings for the Cardassians, who will roll straight back in. Lee has a plan. He'll call the Chamber of Ministers to let them know what's up. But communications have been blocked on Bajor. The coup has begun. Back on Bajor, Vedic Wen has come to meet with Minister Jarrow. They've come to... dance. A very political dance. He's confident that he will rule Bajor, though. He could use some public support. Wen says she'd be happy to support him, but she's not sure he'll be the leader. Well, he says, tell the people that the prophets are on my side, and when it comes time for the Vedics to choose a Kai, I'll be on your side. Deal. Back on DS9, two Bajoran assault vessels are on the way. They've given all non-Bajorans seven hours to withdraw from the station. Starfleet hears Sisko's argument. Yes, this is a political matter, internal to Bajor, but it's being backed by the Cardassians, a fact the Bajorans do not know. Maybe. But, says Starfleet, it is a political matter, internal to Bajor. The Prime Directive applies. We'll figure out the politics later, but... Right now, time to go. Cisco will obey. Kind of. See, he wants to make sure that Starfleet leaves nothing behind, so some personnel might not make the seven-hour deadline. The conclusion. While Cisco has decided how he'll handle ignoring Starfleet's call to abandon Deep Space Nine, he won't make that call for everyone under him. But he gives a rousing speech, and they all decide to drag their heels leaving, right along with Cisco. Act 1. Families of non-Bajorans and others are being evacuated from DS9. It's sad goodbyes for friends and families, and a bit of profiteering on Quark's part. That will, of course, come back to bite him when his own brother, Rom, sells Quark's seat on the Rio Grande, leaving Quark stranded on the soon-to-be-occupied station. Kira and Lee Nallis still want to get information implicating the Cardassians to the Chamber of Ministers. Lee thinks there may be an old ship hidden from the time of the Resistance. One of the evacuation transports will drop off Kira and Dax to grab that. Act 2. The Bajoran assault vessels have arrived, finding a seemingly empty Deep Space Nine. General Krem finds the quick abandonment hard to believe. Though his first-in-command, Colonel Day, figures Minister Jaro was correct that Starfleet had no stomach for a fight and simply withdrew the post. Krim says that's not something he would have done. Of course, it's not something Cisco and crew would do either. Hidden, they watch as Krim and company search the station. Colonel Day calls Jarrow to tell him that they've encountered no resistance. Jarrow wants to announce the victory, though Krim advises caution. He thinks there may still be Starfleet crew on Deep Space Nine, and Lee Nullis may be there too. He's having the station scanned randomly. Jero stresses the importance of taking Lee Nallis alive. With his help, their victory could be sealed, while a dead Lee could break the coalition Jaros put together. In Jarro's ear, Vedic Wynn keeps telling him that he's a marvelous leader, and if he prevails, he says he'll direct the Council of Vedics to make her Kai the following day. Act 3. Kira and Dax found the old Resistance ship... They did that actually in Act 2, and Act 3 starts with them starting that ship. On Deep Space Nine, Krim and Day are arguing about how to proceed. Krim is still being cautious, though, when power goes out on the station, the result of apparent sabotage, Day says he's sending out search parties. They're getting close. So close that Julian and his group get the drop on one of the search parties. The DS9 holdouts have taken their first Bajoran prisoners. Dax and Kira are approaching Bajor with not much in the way of censors, and they're being attacked. Kira leads the fight into the Bajoran atmosphere. Act 4. Out on a sabotage run, O'Brien and Lee Nallis are spotted and fired upon by one of Colonel Day's search parties. O'Brien calls for backup from Cisco. They provide cover, allowing the saboteurs to get away. Over Bajor, Kira and Dax's fight goes fine. Eh, right until it doesn't. They take out one ship, but are taken out by another and forced into a crash landing. Back on Deep Space Nine, Colonel Day catches Sisko, Bashir, and Lee Knollis in one of the hollow suites in Quarks, except, ha <laughs> ha, no he doesn't. They were holograms, because, duh. The real Cisco radios in, though, and hits Day with a bit of truth. It's the Cardassians that have been supplying weapons to the Circle. Day says Jero would never deal with the Cardassians, though Cisco says Jero doesn't know it's the Cardassians behind the whole thing. Cisco says he'll keep Day's officers as his guests, and beams Day back to ops. Reporting into Krim, Day straight up lies. He doesn't tell the commanding officer what Cisco told him. Meanwhile, Krim's people have gotten station sensors back online. They don't see signs of the holdouts anywhere so they go to the one place censors can't see, figuring they'll find Cisco and crew there. Act 5. Dax and Kira survive their crash, though Kira is really injured. Of course, Dax won't leave her behind. They'll take the evidence they have to the ministers together, though, while they pause for a passing patrol, Kira loses consciousness. On DS9, Krem and company are closing in on Cisco and his people. Cisco tells Lee Nalas that he has to convince Krem... That Krim has picked the wrong side. Back on Bajor, Kira comes to in quarters attended to by Vedic Beryl. She's safe. Dax is safe. In fact, here she is now, in the same Vedic robes as in Kira's encounter with the orb. Beryl will lead Kira and Dax, both disguised as Vedics, to deliver proof of Cardassian interference to the Ministers. On DS9, Sisko has ordered Bashir to make some noise at airlock 14. Bashir and his people begin an attack, and Day takes his soldiers to help in the fight. But the attackers surrender almost immediately. It was a ploy to draw Krim's guards away. Undefended, O'Brien, Lee Nullis, and others take Krim at gunpoint. In the Council of Ministers, Kira presents her proof of Cardassian interference. Jero tries to stop the presentation, though once she shows physical proof, the manifest that Odo stole earlier... Well... That'll need to be reviewed. So says Vedic Wynn. Jero has no choice but to agree, and the ministers all clamor for Kira's attention, very much like her vision from the orb. Back on DS9, Day is back from Airlock 14 with his prisoners, and Krim is not happy. He's heard from Lee Knollis about the message Day was supposed to deliver about Cardassian involvement. Further, word from Bajor is that the ministers are in recess while they look into the charges. Krim figures he'll have to resign. And, as what could well be his last official act, he turns control of Deep Space Nine back over to Benjamin Sisko. That doesn't sit well with Day, a member of the Circle. Bajor for the Bajorans. He draws his phaser to kill Sisko, but Lee Nallis sees the shot coming and takes the hit instead of the commander. It's not the way he would have wanted it, but Lee Nallis finally gets what he wished for. Smiling, he says to Sisko, Off the hook after all. And with that, he's gone. Later, back in uniform, Kira mourns Lee's passing. She wants to know where they'll find someone to take his place, though Sisko says there are heroes all over Bajor. She's one of them. Kira excuses herself, Then a perplexed O'Brien quizzes Cisco on why everyone reveres Lee so. Cisco tells O'Brien what he told Lee himself in The Homecoming. He's a legend. That's how history will remember him, and that's what Cisco will say anytime anyone asks. And with that, word of the Ganges return, and the families of the officers stationed there, and life starts getting back to normal on Deep Space Nine
2: the end so much plot Ken. so much plot john you can has all the plot and you did <laughs> yeah I,
0: and you say why did they split it up into three episodes
2: yeah right <laughs> wow yeah it was a lot <laughs> no well done well done oh thank um, you i appreciate that yeah yeah because at one time when we talked about doing this as three i'm thinking like okay each episode gets a paragraph Yep. <laughs> and then and then you know we just uh, we just move on from there. No, like, you uh, can't uh, really you can't really do that,
0: can you? Although uh, honestly, I mean, I shortened up the stuff from the siege because a lot of it really was military stuff. Now, I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's not interesting to some people, but it's not like oh, so what do you make of the fact that they uh, were fooled by the holodeck or the hollow suite? Excuse yeah. me, <laughs> which is ridiculous. That's just ridiculous. Oh, they're in a hollow suite, really? Yeah. And they're oh, just I there. wonder what we'll
2: find in there. Yeah.
0: Right, they're just there with no weapons, nothing to fall on our heads. Just three of them sitting there. But I'm pretty sure this is legit.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, great, uh, some great lines in this episode. I, I loved, uh, uh and look, I, I know that I'm going to talk about Frank Langella, particularly when we get to our wrap up. Um, but the, the scene between Cisco and Jaro and Cisco says straight to Jaro's face, he was a bag of hot air and everyone recognized him for what he was. <laughs> now I, I've said from time to time that maybe Avery is acting, I, I feel like is kind of, inconsistent like i don't always know where he is you know but there was something about watching these two together when they're just so dead serious and underplaying everything and it's all subtext all the way and it's great it's great so yeah love that moment it was fantastic yeah and also then let's talk again about that very amusing scene with everybody saying goodbye to Kira. Just a, a lot of fun. So well directed. The overlapping dialogue. And and I was really impressed to read that they did that. Uh, they did one continuous take and then did the cutaways from there. Um, just so nice. And not something you get a lot of on Star Trek, um, particularly if you go back to Next Gen. There's just line and then cut and then line and then cut. This had a lot of action in it.
0: It's interesting to me, actually, that you said this was sort of based on A Night at the Opera, because Mm -hmm. I don't remember that being a, a, and I haven't seen it in a while, I'll grant you. Mm -hmm. I'm much more familiar with uh, Duck Soup, especially. That's one that I'll just watch over and over again. Sure. I don't remember a lot of dialogue in that scene from A Night at the Opera. It was reminiscent to me of His Girl Friday. I mean, there was a tiny bit of, like, in the rapid fire, you know, in that act. Absolutely wonderful. Um And the the conversation aboard the resistance ship between Dax and Kira is pretty good as well. I mean, they're, they're, you're right. I hadn't thought about it as being the, you know, the cutaway cutaway thing. But I remember asking you last week, actually, like I meant to keep track of who wrote the first one and who wrote, you know, these, because yes, the, the dialogue, especially in, uh, in the middle one in um, the circle uh, for such a heavy episode is, uh, is, is fun. A lot
2: of times. Well, that's what's interesting. So, um, Ira wrote The Homecoming. Okay. um, And then Peter Allen Fields wrote The Circle. And we we talk about him having, uh, uh, you know, his TV career going back to the 60s. And funny enough, and I'll drop a little thing here from the Trek Files. Peter Allen Fields was a lawyer. He was an attorney. And he really liked this show, The Man From U.N.C.L.E., and he went home one night and wrote a script And uh, I'm sorry, he actually had a contact on the show and they said, yeah, well, if you want to take a crack at something, you can write something. He went home that night, wrote the whole script, sent it in. And they were like, no, 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 you're not supposed to do that. But it was so good. They basically worked with it as is. Hmm. So he, he, this guy had this reputation just being able to knock out a script with great dialogue and great character moments just right on the fly. So, uh, that, that's what he did. And then Michael Piller wrote The Siege. Now, keep in mind that even though you have one writer credit for, for each of those stories, this was all done in the collaborative effort of the show. So Michael Piller being EP, uh, Ira being a producer on the show and Pierre Allen Fields being a producer on the show. They, they all had a lot of influence over each other's scripts, but when it came down to the, the final credit of who actually turned in that, uh, that shooting script, well, you know, went through a lot of hands, but it has got to come down to usually just one, one or two writers on the, uh, on the credit. Um, so yeah, but it, interesting to see three different writers. Even though the first and the, uh, the 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 second, in particular, has so much kind of crackling dialogue, and another piece of crackling dialogue. I'm so glad you pointed this out. Feel free to stay as many days as you like, even a week if necessary.
0: <laughs> uh, she's she's just she's wonderful in how horrible she is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. She's just, I mean, I
0: I like, I mean, she's, I mean, and nurse, nurse ratchet, obviously Mm -hmm. Louise Fletcher is a, is a really wonderful actress. And I think you see her come on screen and you're just like, I hate her. Yeah. Yeah. Because she, she, she plays uh, bad characters really well.
2: Oh, just so, oh, just seething. Oh yeah. So good. All right. uh, Let's say, Ken, that you're a member of the circle. And uh, and you're walking around with a mask and you got a long red robe. Look, I just have to assume that you have to beam in from one place to the other at the last second, because otherwise, like if you're walking around the Ferndale, that is a lot to deal with Uh, going through the woods. You got to sneak up on somebody. It's a whole thing.
0: Well, there are are two things. First of all, I don't think they can just be beaming in because they never just beam out when they're done. Right.
2: Yeah. Right. Like they
0: carried Kira off. Mm -hmm. Which, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think they would have wasted, like, you know, what little transport power they had just getting there. And they're going to be like, okay, well, we'll, look, we can either beam you in and you're going to have to lug her all the way out or you can walk there (laughs) and we can beam, you know, the four of you out. And they're like, yeah, no, I'm tired right now. But I think, you know, picking her up is really going to like jazz me or something. So, yeah, we'll be able to do that. I kept wondering, like, what would you say if somebody stopped you? Like what, like what? are you guys up to? And he's like, "Uh, trick or treat? Yeah, really, trick or treat for UNICEF? Oh, for UNICEF? Well, oh, then okay. They're you know the the Bajor, yeah. I guess, part of UNICEF. They're,
2: you're not uh, you're not members of the circle, are you? No, no, no. Because no. <laughs> no. I hear that they have masks and red robes and they're walking around all the time. Yeah, no, okay. these
0: are more like uh, crimson though. These aren't red. Yeah. So,
2: yeah. yeah. It's it's fine. Yeah, good point. Um, hey, that uh, that group of people waiting around outside the shuttles. To escape. Look, I, I know it's TV. I know it's TV and we have to suspend his belief and you condense moments, you know, to, to get the right moment uh, out of a scene. But Mm -hmm. I love how just like one well placed, impassioned speech turns him away from being an angry mob. I mean, look, good thing it's Lee Nallis. He's good. He's good, but uh, or at least, well, he he has to step up to be good because he realizes that people will listen to him. Uh, but still, it's like, we're an angry mob. We're going to get on this shuttle. We don't care. And Lee Nallis shows him and says, like, hey, uh, I'm going to stay, and uh, maybe you should stay, too. Oh, you're Lee Nallis. You're right. You're right.
0: Here's what I'm going to say, though. Um, mm-hmm. I feel certain I've talked about this person on uh, this show before. Uh, Emperor Norton, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. sure. Sure. Emperor Norton, one of, the, one of the most amazing things that Emperor Norton ever did was there was a crowd of people in San Francisco, and this is back in the mid to late 1800s, mm-hmm. uh, a crowd of people on their way to burn down Chinatown. And Emperor Norton walked out into the street, dropped to his knees and started praying. And mm. guess what didn't burn down that night?
2: I'm gonna go with Chinatown.
0: Yeah, go with Chinatown because that's the right answer. See, the right person at the right time. And this kind of goes back to what we were saying about Lee Knollis last week, actually. He's like, I'm no hero. I just, you know, happen to be literally in a place at a time to do a thing. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he was that time as well. Um, I, I will say though, I mean, there were a lot of people there and he wasn't talking that loud. Yeah, right. I wonder right. if there was I wonder if there was somebody in the background going, What did he say about cheese makers? Yeah.
2: <laughs> right. And hey, and I hope you look close during that scene on the promenade because so many uh, of our old friends there—Tracy uh, Coco in her uh, Coberian makeup—in in one shot at least—and Morn, Morn just kind of back there in the background. I kept I kept hoping he'd just pipe up and say something, but but he but he didn't. He, he didn't. may have been the guy saying, "What did he say about cheesemakers?" He's <laughs> right. right. Uh, spider Dog, look, I, I got I got nothing here. I got nothing here, but I just had to say Spider-Dog. And, and you can eat it. So, so there's that.
0: In yeah. times of war. I mean, I don't I don't think they're like, you know, I don't think it's a delicacy the rest of the time, right?
2: They're like, boy, you know, I like life here on DS9, but every now and then I could just really go for a little Spider-Dog.
0: Yeah. You don't hear them calling for that on the replicator that much.
2: No. No, but look, while we're on the subject of food, combat rations. Um, it's an amusing scene though first of all there's a lot of dialogue anyway for people who are in hiding um, but there's a lot of dialogue about those combat rations I mean you could if you're an actor try this you could take O'Brien's whole thing as an audition monologue you know he's talking about oh combat rations are great and it's timed release and you get to eat them and I really developed a taste for them um, also I, I'm not too ashamed to admit that I have a fascination of watching rations videos on YouTube
1: The fact that Kira knows that her parents were ashamed of her finger painting when she was four may explain a lot about the major.
0: We'll go deeper into the circle and the siege in a moment, but first, a word from the Great Courses Plus. It's exactly what it sounds like. Great courses covering all sorts of subjects from health and fitness to the art of debate to understanding calculus to your deceptive mind.
2: So what I'm going to do, Ken, is I'm going to sit at home and watch all these great courses.
0: Well, John, you could sit at home and watch all these great courses if you want to. But here's what's really cool. They've actually uh, they've added an app so you can, you know, sit at home and watch these courses, say, you know, uh, bounce it to your smart TV. If you've got some way to, you know, shoot it from your Android device or from your, you know, iDevice or, you know, whatever you got an iPad, iPhone, things like that. But they've also got an app so that you can, uh, you know, you can uh, watch it on the go. Let's say you're somebody who takes the train or let's say you're somebody who's, you know, stuck sitting someplace for a long time. Or let's say you've got a commute. I actually, I like the listening uh, portion. The Great Courses Plus, like I say, they've got an app for iOS or for Android. So instead of having to, as you say, sit at home and watch them, which you can do, uh, you can also listen, you know, like you listen to a podcast. So you can do that while you work, you can do that while you jog, you can do that while you drive. Basically, any
2: place is great for a great course. So we've told you about courses that we've already enjoyed, those by Kyle David Johnson and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Now, I'm really excited about this one, too. I want to tell you about a course by someone that I'm a big fan of, Dr. Stephen Novella. His course, Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills, is the gold standard for learning about how we think and how not to get trapped in logical fallacies. Uh, Let's see just a few of the courses, The Neuroscience of Belief. Science and Pseudoscience and Flaws and Fabrications of Memory. That's just a handful of the lectures in this great course. In fact, I've referred to some of Dr. Novella's concepts on Mission Log, particularly about how memory is just a construct created by the brain every time we try to remember something.
0: Which episode was that? I don't remember. Uh, 24 lectures in this course, all waiting for you. Uh, but you don't have to hit them all. You can pick and choose from this course and seemingly countless others, and you can start for free. Mission Log listeners have access to one month of lectures from The Great Courses Plus. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mission log. It's a lot of words, but there are a lot of big ideas that come with it, so let me say it one more time. thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mission log. Life is full of stuff you have to know. This is stuff you
2: want to know. One more time. Start today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mission log. And a huge thanks to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this week's show.
0: So this is not the first time that this question has come up. Not unlike many episodes of Next Gen and a few episodes of the original series, uh, does Cisco have a job next week?
2: He just he straight up Starfleet says, hey, do this thing. And he's like, yeah, OK, no.
0: <laughs> well, no, what he said was, OK, I will do the thing. However, I'm going to take my time doing the thing.
2: Mm-hmm. And and then stands in there uh, with everybody else and he's like, so here's what I've been told to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to drag my feet. Right. And uh, how do you guys feel about this? And the repo said, like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're right behind you. I like this idea. I like this uh, floating authority, you say. Yes, mm-hmm. that's a great yeah, idea. Everybody, everybody. And, and look, I, I get it that that's a very traumatic thing because uh, you, you have to do that in a scene like that. A, I think there might be legitimate reasons for leaving. Um, and, and B, I wonder about the peer pressure.
0: Yeah. I, I was actually a little bit surprised to find that this is a prime directive issue. Because I thought the prime directive really just dealt with the, um, you know, pre-warp civilizations.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I did too. Um, and and not only, we can keep taking it to each logical extreme and you can go okay well well it was about pre-war well now it's about just other people's political entanglement right well all right so we might be able to to say that we're not involved there but but we are involved because look we've been here for a while and we've been actively helping the bajorans do their thing so now we're going to cut and run
0: well except Um, of course i mean it is the bajoran saying you know what nuts to this we've had enough I mean, let's say, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. let's
0: say that, you know, Krim and company, or let's say Jero said, yeah, so listen, uh, we're buying Cardassian <laughs> weapons through the Kasseri, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't know why, but we feel pretty good about it because we really want rid of the Federation, so we're just going to do this. Yeah, I mean, at that point, like, if all the cards are on the table, if Jero had actually come and said, I am dealing with the Cardassians, mm-hmm. then would Benjamin have been like, oh... Uh, well, I guess you know what you're doing, it turns out. All right. Because was yeah. it only Jero's ignorance of what he was doing that made what um, uh, Cisco did legit or was what Cisco did even legit? I mean, it's the right thing to do, but he should also still lose his job, right?
2: Yes. Yes. Agreed. Right. Agreed. Yeah.
0: Not that I want him to. Don't misunderstand. No. No, yeah. no. no. <laughs> of
2: but, course not. Of but, course not. You know, he probably ought Yeah. To. Oh, he's like, you know, look, there therein lies that wiggle room around the, the prime directive. It's like, oh, well, you know, it, it's our prime directive, but oh, there's this thing that's so right to do. See also Captain Kirk. See also Captain Picard. By the way, th- this is one of those times, one of those few times I actually liked the Keiko and Miles O'Brien dynamic. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I I felt like there was something believable in there. There was a stake that we could actually kind of wrap our heads around and they have a daughter and and she's saying, but, but us, um, and you're just staying behind, you don't have to. Uh, so I, I I will cut them some slack for that. Um, and yeah, look, there's an argument to be made where, where was she when he was doing things like flying to our Cardassian prison camp, um, and other missions that he might not come back from. But, um, yeah, I mean, we got a little uh, a little taste of family life there. There was something other than uh, uh, bickering about breakfast. <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk about Jaro a little bit. Um, it, it, he something about him that speaks to a psychology that that is at once just terrible and maybe a little too easy to understand. You know, sure, he's got this Bajoran pride. He has a right to be proud of Bajoran accomplishments and, and Bajorans as people. But but he he can't accept that the world has changed around him and is changing around him. And and his answer to any perceived threat is to start weeding out people who aren't Bajoran enough because it seems like that's the easiest way for him to gain power. I mean, ultimately, it's all about power, but but he's exploiting this idea of Bajor for Bajorans. Um, he has... He's defined himself by his enemies, and by definition, he thinks that everyone is an enemy who's not exactly like the narrow slice of Bajor that he has uh, identified for himself.
0: We, uh, well, okay. You seem to yeah. have decided that. I'm not I'm not 100% certain where I am on Jarrow, honestly. Mm. Like, is he using racism, isolationism, whatever. I mean, is he mm-hmm. using is he using that fear basically to get more for himself or does he actually believe that Bajor would be better off without anybody else except for just Bajorans?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of go- going back to the conversation about um uh, about Vedekwen. Is she a true believer? Or is she cynically exploiting the belief in order to gain power? And, and at a certain point, that question really just becomes academic because they're doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They're, they're, they're uh, building power. They're achieving power and they may believe what they're saying or they may not, but there's still the, the, the goal and the, the end is still the same.
0: I, I, I feel, though, like, look, I'm not saying what Jero is doing is correct. I don't think what Jero mm-hmm. is doing is correct. And we can get into, you know, why I don't think what he's doing is correct in a minute. But I feel like the difference between the two of them is I, I think Jero sees himself as a patriot. I, I, and what that means and whether or not and whatever we can go into, like I say, I, yeah. I think Vedic Wynn uses religion. But, I mean, everything that we've heard about the Bajoran religion is that it was, you know, it was peace and love, peace and love, right? Yeah. And then in um, in The Hands of the Prophets, when she basically bombs a school and tries to have Vedic Boreal killed, yeah, I, I I don't think you can really say that she's a believer at that point. She actually does seem to be about attaining power. Jero is also about attaining power, but I can't tell if it's power for power's sake or power for the sake of Pajor. He's wrong. I mean, either way, he's wrong. <laughs> but I, but uh, I feel like he might be, he might be a believer, not in Vedic Wind's brand of religion, but in uh, in 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 what it is that he's doing. I don't think he just wants to see a statue of himself someplace. I think he wants to see no more Ferengi and no more humans. He feels like. Well, it's as he said. He feels like the Bajorans have been, uh, you know, the the doormat first for the Cardassians, now for the Federations, and he's done with that. But yeah. he's so he's so blinded by that that he's not. I mean, he's he's not he's not even playing checkers, let alone chess. I mean, he's looking one move ahead, yeah, and uh, and not seeing that he's he's about to land himself in checkmate.
2: Well, I, 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 still think that, uh, you know, there's an argument to be made that Vedic Wynne believes in whatever version of her religion she believes in. But boy, she's found every opportunity to exploit it. And, and we see it here in both of them. I mean, it, it's something that absolutely drives me up a wall. And that's using religious language to justify <laughs> any, any impulse, any desire, any ambition that the people here want i mean Jarrow. that that scene and it, and it kicks off this series of scenes that are really they were disturbing the more i watched them when, when Jarrow says i feel the prophet smiling on me today and then Wen gets into the act and and so many of those shots that follow you start off with Jarrow doing something and there's when literally right behind him and the camera just sort of moves around enough to reveal her right behind him yeah um it's all political power play because some people and, and make no mistake, the majorans are us, just like all the aliens on Star Trek are us. Uh, they're greedy and power hungry. Um, Jero saying to Win, tell the people the prophets are with me. Right. It's it's absolutely cringeworthy and Win is right there ready to enable it, but also benefit from it. Um You know, look, I've only been old enough to vote since the 90s. And honestly, I can't think of any election in my lifetime where I haven't heard some candidate describe him or herself or has been described by someone else as the candidate who is chosen by God. (laughs) Am I
0: wrong? Um, Well, I mean, I don't know because I can't remember all of them. But no, I don't think you're wrong.
2: I'm not saying every candidate but I'm saying any candidate you know at at any point in any competition mm-hmm. that that little thing gets dropped right in at some point it's sick it's cynical and I really hope that I live to see the day that it ends it's i mean well, okay
0: here here's the problem that i'm having so so on the one hand you're saying that you think that vedic win believes on some level but you don't think a politician can i mean because i mean look i mean what i had in my notes is how about this not religious guy teaming up with this sanctimonious religious leader to take over the government mm-hmm. this has happened i mean this has happened more than once in our lives sure. this is sure. more than once we could yeah. name them if yeah. we wanted you know
2: Oh, all the letters. Yeah. Eh, Why do we want to do that?
0: Here's, here's, here's what, what bugs me. And well, I don't even know. I don't even know how to do it. I don't even know how to do this. I mean, (laughs) what I kept thinking about is, I mean, there, there is a reason that we have norms. Somebody even said to Jero at one point, you don't like the way things are going. You work within the system to change it, right?
2: I mean, the, uh, uh, Kira said, Kira that. said yeah. that, right. Yeah. This is
0: why we have rules and societal norms. And and yes, those things do evolve, but we can't just go back on them because we want to, or or, or we shouldn't anyway. I mean, this is what I was saying earlier. I think Jero is a patriot. I think he's a true believer in the Bajoran cause, and that does not give him the right to subvert laws and norms. I mean, obviously doing it makes Bajor weaker, and and it goes again to if it was good enough before, it should be good enough now. I mean, it goes back to the Corbyn might maneuver in a way. Here's who we've said we are. Here is who we have to be. And if we need to change, then we work to change. And we talk to people about changing, right? We enact laws. We, we get people together. We keep an eye on what we're doing to make sure that we're going in the right direction. We don't, as Kira said to Jero subvert, we don't just, you know, we don't just take over. Um, And it's, it's, he's a, He's not even as evil as he could be, though. That's the thing. No, but... B is, is as evil as he could be, and Wynn is as evil as she could be. Jero is terrible, and what he's doing is absolutely wrong. But, I mean, there was another thing that happened. Um, no one despises the Cardassians more than me, Major, but we did learn a few things from them, including ways to encourage people to talk, right? This is, this is September 10th Meet September 12th. Who are you going to be after this horrible thing? This goes back to what we were talking about in the hands of the prophets. Something terrible happens to you. Who are you going to be at that point? Are you going to be the person who deals in fear and trades in fear and gets people to do terrible things that they never would have done before because something terrible was done to them? Then you're not who you were anymore. I don't know what you're defending at that point. I don't know what you're fighting for at that point, because just like we talked about with them. Um, Oh, I can't remember if it was in the hands of the prophets or if it was in the homecoming, but I mean, at that point, it's like you said earlier. Okay, great. Now it's just Bajor for the Bajorans, except I under, I, I see you're not wearing the symbol of a uh, of Vedic Winds order. Why aren't you wearing the symbol of Vedic Winds order? Are you sure you're Bajoran? I mean, this is this—it's. It's, it's it's not even a slippery slope it's a it's a it's a ninety degree <laughs> <just> like <laughs> drop off from where these good people uh to well at least I got mine
2: well look here's the thing i I don't think that true belief or or it, in this case you have when you've got Jarro um w- w- to whatever degree they, they have their beliefs, I don't think that true belief and uh, cynical exploitation are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. I think those things can go hand in hand very often, and I think we see them go hand in hand very often. But yes, to your point, um, it, it, the further you exploit those loopholes, or further you cynically exploit the people who would actually honor those beliefs that you say that you honor yes the further away you get from the the core of those beliefs
1: launched headlong into season two of deep space nine it is time to see what we can take from the circle and the siege
2: Two episodes today, Ken. Two episodes, The Circle and The Siege, making up the last two-thirds of the opening of DS9 Season 2. How did we even do it, Ken? How did we even get from there to here? Well, we're here. We've landed at that place in the show where we got to wrap it all up and uh, see if we thought it held up and what the messages and morals and meanings are. So, Ken, The Circle and The Siege, you can take them together. You could take them separately. Do they hold up?
0: Um, it is like the Deep Space Nine writers had a time machine, took notes today, then went back twenty-four years to write it out as a warning. <laughs> there, that's that's my feeling on the whole thing. So, okay. I mean, like as far as as far as the ideas presented and stuff like that, I go back to what I said uh, last week. I think with the Homecoming, um. I would have I, I would have thought, wow, this is an amazing bit of political intrigue, right? Mm-hmm. If, if I had watched this, if I had been watching Deep Space Nine closely when this happened, yes, I might have seen like the possibility that somebody could use religion, whatever, but I would have thought back on it as again, like something that we had gotten past. Yeah. I'm I how how relevant this is today, um, is the only reason I'm not completely disheartened is I'm just amazed. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. like how well it overlays. Also, uh, well-acted, well-produced,
2: all that stuff.
0: What about you? Do you think it holds up? I don't know. We haven't talked about it. Maybe you don't.
2: <laughs> and I mean, it, It's certainly relevant. And, and like I said in the last segment, I, I wonder if I will see a time... That it is not relevant. That we look at this and go, wow, people would do that kind of thing? That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but no, look, just taken as a piece of TV, as, as a production, it is well produced. It is well written. It is well acted. Yeah, I mentioned before uh, how much I really appreciate Frank Langella. His understated menace is absolutely magnetic. Uh, he, he's incredible and man, look, I'm glad that minister Jaro is gone. <laughs> we hope that he's gone uh, because, uh, Oh, he's just terrifying, but man, how do you do a villain better than, than the combination of him and Vedic Nguyen? Um he's perfect with her. She's perfect with him. It's just, uh, disgusting how good they are at being bad. <laughs> um
0: it's so interesting to me that you call him a bad guy. I
2: mean oh, I, yeah, I, I don't yeah, think he's, he's right.
0: I don't think he's right, but I'm not sure he's a villain. I think he's wrong.
2: He's the antagonist. He's the foil. He's not twirling the mustache and and he he's not look, he's not Khan trying to kill Kirk. Of right. course not. He 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 is a twisted and misguided political figure out for a power grab thinks he's doing the right thing. And that's a scary kind of villain to have. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean he's he's the villain for the episode, but he's not he's not as twisted as Vedic Wynn. So you do think he thinks
0: he's doing the right thing because I think yeah, Vedic, yeah, I think yeah. Vedic Wynn is the villain. And while you say wow, I'm glad jaro has gone and I hope he doesn't come back, the fact that she's still standing at the end, the fact that she's like, "Oh, oh, here comes a bus. Time for you to be under it, Jarrow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> without even missing a beat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, she's she is all behind him as long as he's there to be behind. And the second it looks like he might falter, (laughs) she's Mm -hmm. like, wow, you've got a lot of explaining to do, mister.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Terrifying. Very publicly and openly. Yeah. Uh, look, I'll say this about the production, you know, episode two is, uh, no, I'm sorry. Episode three. I mean, the, the, the siege is a little more punchy it It moves a little better and obviously has more action and tension, but the setup that you get in the circle is great, and, like I said, I love that slow burn menace that we get at the end. all that stuff between uh Jarrow and Wynn is just uh creep uh but but the cat and mouse stuff that we get in the siege is just amusing t v because the tension is high and the the action is there. I'll say that Stephen mocked. He's fine here as the Bajoran General Krim. Uh, I cannot picture him as Picard, um, after watching this. Now, he's playing a role. And I'm sure that his audition for Picard was very different, but, um, I, I, I just can't put those two things together in my head. And, uh, it's interesting that, you know, we get the redemption for Lee Nallis by completing his story. That the legend lives on even if the man doesn't. Uh, and there was some debate about that between Peter Allen Fields and Ira Stephen Bear. You know, uh, uh, Ira felt very strongly that they needed to end his story by ending Lee Nallis. Peter Allen Fields felt like they gave short shrift to the character. So um, would have liked to have been a fly on the wall during that.
0: I mean, it wasn't necessary to keep him alive, but I mean, it's okay that he dies. I mean, yeah. uh, it, had it been, hey, we got Lee Nullis, you know, in act one and in act five, we're saying goodbye. That would have been fairly standard. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we had him over three episodes, I mean, it, obviously not the same as having him for two seasons or something like that. But um, yeah, I mean, it would have been neat to see him. It would have been maybe neat to see him evolve, but we don't lose anything by by no. losing him because, no. as you say, we did we did show a good arc for him.
2: But I'll say this about these two episodes, and really these three as as a whole. This is the first time that I actually felt kind of detached from Star Trek watching these. Now mm-hmm. we, we've gone through the entire first season of DS9, and and sure, in this one there was talk of the Prime Directive. But honestly, I was so wrapped up in what was happening with the Bajorans and, and particularly with just my, oh, oh, my, my disgust <laughs> with Wynn and Jarrow that I stopped thinking about Starfleet. I stopped thinking about Boldly Going. I stopped thinking about any of that. And I was just so wrapped up in Bajoran politics and, and maybe the uneasy parallels to late 20th and early 21st century politics that I, I almost for a minute just stopped thinking about this as being part of what we've been doing for the last six years and what Star Trek has been doing for the last 50 years. Well, 27 years as this aired. Mm-hmm. Um But yeah, yeah, it, it just felt different to me. And uh, not in a bad way, not, not in that sort of like, oh, this isn't Star Trek way, but I, I just sort of, that other stuff kind of went out of my mind for a moment because I was so invested in the other. And uh, that was a strange feeling for me to have.
0: Uh, You kind of make me want to ask Then I mean, we go back to go back to episodes like um, city on the edge of forever or go Mm -hmm. back to, uh, you know, other episodes that are seen as classic episodes. And, and we have raised the question before whether they were as Star Trek as you would necessarily want them to be. Yeah. Yeah, Or go back to Vegas a few weeks ago. Yeah. But is it Star Trek?
2: Right. No, I've been asking myself that for, well, the last several days as I crunch through these episodes. And and I don't think I can answer that right now because, you know, part of me says, well, there's something of the Star Trek formula that I'm not getting here. Mm -hmm. But... If we, if we take Star Trek and science fiction as a whole as, as a metaphor for us and as a way to hold up a mirror to who we are. Well, like I said, the Bajorans are us. And yes, yeah, Starfleet is also us and Cisco is also us and, and trying to make a moral decision and do what's right, even when doing what's right isn't precisely in line with the rules or the orders you've been given. Yeah, this is all an examination of who we are as humans. But now we've allowed the Bajorans to hold up this sort of uglier side of the mirror to us as well and say, here's what happens when certain impulses get completely out of hand. And when we allow things like uh, uh, belief and drive for power and an exploitation to get in the way of who we can actually be so. You might have to come back to me on this because I, I I could sit down and say this is really, really Star Trek because science fiction as the metaphor for who we are now is on full display here. But I could also sit down and write an essay on how this isn't Star trek Star Trek, put it in quotes, mm-hmm. um, because something didn't land right with me in the experience of this.
0: See, here's the thing, and maybe this is the part, and and this is part of the examination, I think, that we're doing in doing this show. I am not here to say that Deep Space Nine is not Star Trek. We're not even halfway through the whole run. I can't possibly do that. You also go back to the panel that we did in Vegas a few weeks ago. Of course, it's tra- Star Trek because you know, it was made by Paramount, and it says Star yeah. Trek. So, I mean, and they've got deltas, and they got the whole thing. And, and Captain Picard was even on an episode. And I think there's a Riker character that's going to be on at some point. And holy cow, <laughs> I think Loxana was on an episode that I'm trying to forget. Uh-huh. So, really, Q. Q was Q. even here. So, yes, in Star Trek. Trek. Here's the thing. The one episode of the original series that we always had, well, not that we always had a problem with. The one that was always amazing to me, and the one that was, in a lot of ways, the least Star Trek, was A Private Little War. And what I've always said was it felt to me like that was Gene Roddenberry, not so much writing a story as banging on the typewriter in frustration, because that was a look at what was going on in Vietnam at the time. And this guy who liked to come up with ways that we could get past stuff was looking at this saying, I don't know how we get past this. And I think the problem that I'm having with 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 this arc of episodes, and it's wonderfully acted, it's wonderfully produced, it's wonderfully written, and it says a lot that's really relevant today. The problem is Deep Space Nine is a private little war. We're not going to be able to, we, we don't get to the end of this and say, oh, good, because you know what? Jero may be in jail, but Wynn isn't. And I understand that where we live right now is a constant battle. This is one of the things that people loved about discovery. Oh, it always seems like everything's so perfect. And I want to know how it is that we get through stuff. If you're constantly concentrating on how we're going to get through stuff, you're never going to accept the fact that you actually can, right, is is a possible concern. And so, yes, Cisco still gets to keep Deep Space Nine, but Vedic Wynn is still out there and the Cardassians are still out there. And I'm wondering if what we just got shown is this is going to be seven seasons of struggle. Mm. And that's not what Star Trek has been. The most struggle that Star Trek has given us is maybe two episodes. Holy crud. Captain Picard's a Borg now. Okay, he's not anymore, right? Yeah. And yeah. maybe that affects him, but the, the longest it took us to get through a problem was two episodes, And, and so you could, you could hang your hat on the fact that if you're Starfleet, things are going to be okay. And, and, and this is the, this is the first time that we've come across Star Trek, where Star Trek is not giving us that guarantee. I know it's not going to be the last time we come across it, but this is the first time where they're really saying, yeah, you know, so you're, you're Starfleet and that's fine when you're not here, but basically this is the first star Trek that has said here in the real world, yeah. which is, which is not what we've ever expected from star Trek and not what we've ever gone to star Trek four. That is F O R not star Trek four. <laughs> Cause that's the one with the whales and everything's going to be fine there.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, look, the, the, that's sort of, that's sort of where we land in this weird place because yeah, we, we did a panel in Vegas called, but is it star Trek? On Mission Log, kind of what we're doing is saying, all right, well, well this is Star Trek because w- what we've been given is a show that has Star Trek in the title. Now, what is Star Trek trying to say? Mm-hmm. And w- we had three seasons of one show trying to say something. We had seven seasons of another show trying to say something. We had X number of movies and you also had, you know, 22 episodes of an animated show trying to say something about humanity. Now we have this other Star Trek with a different name after the colon (laughs) Mm -hmm. trying to say something and and what's being said here is a lot of challenging and uh, might we say bleak (laughs) disturbing you know some some things that are are a little tough to deal with so that said that's my segue by the way that that, that's uh, what we call it in the business here that segue then what is the message here? What do we think these shows, these these two may be uh, taken as we have here, or, or the three together? What are we trying to say here at the beginning of season two of DS9? Morals, meanings, messages, go to it. Uh,
0: well, I mean, assuming we're talking about the Jaro and that win part, or the Jaro part in particular, you don't subvert the rules, you don't subvert the laws, you don't subvert the will of the people uh, to seize power. Um, you don 't whip up fear and hatred to seize power. Uh, might does not make right. I mean might may be right at times. might is i believe necessary it 's not always wrong, but it doesn't automatically make you right and um And the one other one that I got is you have to look a gift horse in the mouth. We joked about this forever ago. Mm-hmm. When that phrase was a phrase, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. That's because if there was something wrong with the horse, you could shoot it mm-hmm. legally. You could shoot it and leave it wherever you shot it because, you know, we're talking about yeah. a phrase that came up in the 16, 17, 1800s, maybe. Uh, we live in a world now where you have to look a gift horse in the mouth, right? You can't say, oh, they just happen to have weapons that I just happen to know about and just happen to be able to afford. What an unbelievable amount of coincidence and luck. <laughs> let me just do, let me, Yes, I will absolutely throw in with you having absolutely no idea whether or not, you know, how this is happening. But But boy, what a fortunate person am I. I mean, you have to look more than, you know, one step away. If somebody calls you and tells you they're going to make you rich and all you have to do is give them your bank number, you have to investigate that a tiny bit. If somebody comes to you and says, I'm going to make everything better for you and all you have to do is you have to do a tiny bit of due diligence because otherwise you could be turning your planet over to reptilian creatures or, you know. Something worse, believe it or not. (laughs) What about you, John? What messages did you pick up?
2: Yeah, well, look, there are some uh, kind of less serious ones in there as well. Um, I I like Vedic Barail telling Kira, be useless for a moment. I don't know, just a a nice moment for her to to step outside of herself and her her constant drive to do something uh, and, and just actually be in herself and be useless for a moment. It's okay. So, all right. Um, there's a lot of, uh, kind of classic Star Trek being stronger together messaging in this episode. Even Jake and Dog have that moment to really drive it home. To say, hey, look, there's all this other stuff happening out there. But at the end of the day, we're, we're people. We're friends who connect because we're friends, regardless of, of the politics and what the other people are telling us. Uh, so that it was nice to humanize that or human and pharyngeize that in a moment. Um, Similar to your – I'm getting more serious as this goes – similar to your uh, talk about uh, looking gift horse in the mouth because you have to. Yeah, question your leader's motivations. That's fine. That's absolutely fine and is necessary and should be done. And then, you know, at the end of this, at the end of the three-episode arc, not really – a message necessarily, but at the end, Cisco is firmly on the side of protecting Lee Nallis' legend, um, which is interesting, because he doesn't really have to do that. Lee did something heroic in the end. I had to wonder, though, given enough time, will the history books dig a little deeper and talk to the people who knew the truth? But, But at least in this case, at the end of this episode, we end it with Cisco... Making sure that Miles O'Brien knows, and then we, the audience, know that the the truth in quotes is more important than the truth of the capital T. And and I think that's one of the themes being explored in this episode uh, throughout. And, and because it is, I like that we gave Lee that moment of redemption at the end. Because he actually got to live up to being that guy mm. that... People believed he was, even though he didn't feel like he was.
0: Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Uh, you know about all the podcasts on the Roddenberry Podcast Network, don't you? What you don't? Podcast. Roddenberry. Com. That'll clue you in. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at Patreon. Com slash Mission Log. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM, that is trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com.
2: Next week, Invasive Procedures.
1: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at Warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at ki Next week's episode, Invasive Procedures. That sounds like Star Trek. After the colon.